Support for Class Dismissed comes from School Status. School Status helps educators at every level take control of student data for increased outcomes and meaningful stakeholder engagement. Find out more at SchoolStatus.com. You are listening to Class Dismissed, Episode 158, and I'm your host, Nick Ortigo. Can schools force students to wear masks this fall? We'll discuss. And should you consider modifying the perimeter of your classroom? Stay with us. Class Dismissed is the podcast that inspires educators through story. Each week, we cover some of the hottest topics and news in the world of education. Plus, we hear from a guest with a bright idea for education that you can apply in your community. This week, our guest gives us some pointers on how to lay an energetic foundation for your students on the first day back to school. Hello, everybody. Nick Ortigo here. Today is July 2nd, 2020, and I'm joined by my friend, principal, and co-host, Christina Pollard. Christina, we are just one month away from reopening schools. How are you feeling about that? Oh, my goodness. So I don't think we're going to open. You you don't think we're going to open at all? Like, you don't think it's going to happen? I'm just, and I'm not being pessimistic. I am truly looking at the numbers. And we are, as school districts, working so hard to be prepared because we want to serve our children. There's mixed feelings within, you know, the school communities. But I'm watching every day these numbers, not just in our state, but surrounding our state. And we're what, five weeks from school starting? And Mm -hmm. I feel a shutdown coming. Yes. Okay. We've been getting a little loose. And some people have never really settled down. And some people have are so loose, like the pandemic doesn't even exist. I'm feeling a shelter in place coming back. I'm feeling a shutdown coming back. I was going to ask you almost like we'll do like a a pool or where we could like, you know, place our bets on a date of when we will cancel school and go back to full digital learning. And, you know, I was going to say definitely before Thanksgiving, but you, you're saying we may not I even don't think open. If we open in August, we're not making it to Labor Day. And so by your rationale, then, I wouldn't be surprised if they don't push it back to Labor Day and say, let's just buy some more time. We'll push back to Labor Day, run school into June rather than getting well, out, you know, within the state of Mississippi, um, our state department has approved or, or rather relegated that we need to provide at least 240 minutes of instruction. And previously it was no less than 330 minutes of instruction, but they did not modify the number of days to provide instruction, which is 187 days. So with that being said, um, that they would need a full school board decision for that yeah, but, to happen. But you would think, I mean, th- that can happen, right? We're in the world where well, things Well, school districts quickly. can say, absolutely, school districts can say we're going to push it back. But when they push it back, they have to add on the tail end of the school year as of right now. So you still have to, you know, meet your required number of days. Well, and I think what that's I, normal, right? I mean, the East Coast, they get out normal, in June. It's normal, but listen here. I, I am feeling that there's getting ready to be 
a nationwide shutdown so that we can get it together. I mean, we talked so that would ugly. require leadership, Christina. I don't see that happening. I'm just being I, frank. I, but but it's getting, the numbers are going to start getting scary. Yeah. Um, more lives are going to be lost. Parents are freaking out. They don't want to send their children to school, but at the same time, if they don't want to lose their jobs, and so many already have, and it does require leadership. But let's let's just talk about this. So just what three four months ago we were oh I won't go any, anywhere near Europe I'm not going to Italy oh my gosh right. have you seen their numbers they're 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 dying off in droves have you checked them out lately oh no it's like a hundred and something a day in, in entire countries in Europe it's like Florida's and it's crushing because them. and it is because no matter what the citizens felt. They shut it down. They were serious. You're not roaming. There are no parties. There, you know, we're not going to the beach. We're not going to the lake. We're not sitting out and having wine on the uh, veranda. Everybody shut it down. They really, truly um, accepted responsibility as citizens. And now just look around. You just talk about Spain, just everywhere that it was so devastating. And I think they're laughing at us. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it does. It does feel that way a little bit. I mean, look, if and I'm not president, but if I were president, I would remove the politics from the situation. You, you, you and appoint take a, care of humans. You yes. point at a general and you point a uh, scientist. So it's like Fauci and some general. And they're like, these are the people who are in charge of the task force. These are the people, you know, the the, the military mm-hmm. leadership can handle the logistics mm-hmm. side and the scientists can handle, you know, what we should be doing to advise and let the logistics take place from there. And it's just so disappointing. And, and we're never going to get our economy back to full speed no. if we don't solve the spread problem. The American Academy of Pe- Pediatrics, um, who actually has a reputation for being conservative and cautious, came out this week and said they think that schools should be reopened and kids should uh. report in person. Um, mm. So that kind of, I think, caught a lot of people off guard. There was a really good interview. I'm going to link to it. It was in... I'm trying to find the name of this publication. This is Boston.com. Um, so it's some sort of Boston publication. But they did an interview with Dr. Sean O'Leary, a pediatrics infectious disease specialist at the University of Colorado who helped write this academy's guidelines. And he's mm-hmm. also a father of two children. And he's also a COVID survivor. He contracted it back in March and still has symptoms today. He's basically saying that they they asked him about can they summarize like why do they make this decision and why it should be done in person and it, it all comes down to they feel like there's more benefits in terms of as we talk about the, the social emotional learning they, they said mm-hmm. there's been reports of you know abuse in homes just from I guess families being so cramped up um, with maybe parents who might have already been abusive they also go into details about the fact that um, there's literature and anecdotal evidence that kids really do seem to be both less likely to catch the infection and less likely to spread the infection and they cited a report on that. So so what say you about hearing that? I mean, are, are we being too cautious? I don't, it's hard to say that we're being too cautious. This just, this is just so new and everyone is experiencing it differently. And I'll use my household as an example. My husband is high risk. And every single day when I interact with my colleagues, I'm so nervous about, you know, coming home and exposing him in any way. Mm-hmm. My um, youngest son desperately wants to go back to school. He has had it with being at home. And I want him to be able to go back to school. We want them to get their social interactions back and get high quality instruction face to face. How am I going to, how is my child going to be challenged in right. algebra three 
you know, um, just watching videos and solving problems and getting either correct or incorrect answers for, you know, um, evaluation. So when you look at it from, from that perspective, I want them to go to school, but it's just so hard. Is our district ready? I mean, is, is the district in our neighborhood truly ready? Do we have the PPE, the cleaning supplies? Do we have everything we need to protect staff? Because that is where a huge concern comes in. If you do have children that enter your building and they've been exposed to someone in their family with symptoms diagnosed for sure, then you really need to be concerned about your staff members. You got to have a containment room. Mm-hmm. Who's going to staff that containment room? Right now, I haven't identified who that person's going to be. I can't. I can't give them hazard pay. What does that look like? Right. Yeah, no, I mean, there there are so many what ifs and, and staffing in general. Like, I mean, if if you have um, one person who has symptoms, let's just say they don't even have COVID-19, but they have symptoms. Um, and then another we has have some, to send them home. Right. I know. Immediately. And and so it's like, yeah, that is is definitely going to be a challenge. Uh, and then you got to notify every parent mm-hmm. of a child that they may have come in contact with. And if they sat in the teacher workroom, <laughs> God forbid, for five minutes with even just one other person, that's another person that has to be informed and possibly quarantined. Uh, Ed Surge had an interesting article uh, that was more about um, how we should kind of be designing our schools and our classrooms and just offering some some ideas there that I necessarily hadn't heard of. And and one, they talked about just like the signage on the front doors of the school through the hallways that are in the classrooms. Um, they, they say, and they didn't offer examples, but they say, do we have signage that cares for all or produces fear? So kind of like as your, your school's designing these signs about spacing things out and, and just kind of, you know, keeping things safe is it a negative message does it lack empathy for the emotional stress for all of those returning to school so just something to think about which i thought okay i hadn't really thought of it that way i think of it in a much more sterile uh way mm-hmm. and then um they talked about optimizing the perimeter of your classroom and saying like reevaluate your classroom do you really need these tables or even things on the walls as much. I mean, any way you can kind of open up the space in your classroom. Is that anything that you guys have thought about yet? Yes, we've talked about all of that. You know, I'm, I've been told that there's a school district right here um, in our area that's providing some summer instruction and they have dropped the clear plexi. uh, It's not necessarily glass, but you know, the plastic or whatnot um, down between desk with Mm -hmm. wire hanging from the ceiling. And I think that's awesome. Um, I wish we had the funding and, and, and the wherewithal to be able to do that immediately for ours as well. But on top of that, you need cleaning supplies for that. You've got to constantly disinfect that, especially if children change classes. You've got to constantly disinfect your desk. You know, our- You've got to disinfect the doorknobs, the light switches. All day long, we're, we're going to be cleaning like <laughs> crazy. I know. I know. And, and you know, our old uh, co-host, Lissa, um, she has an art studio, like her own private art studio. Yes. And, How's that been going? Well, for a while, she wasn't able to have but like a very limited amount of students in there. Um, mm. And she came up with the idea to place, she hung shower curtains from the ceiling in the art studio oh. between all of the students. And the mayor allowed her to up her capacity. I think it was like from six to 12 or something like that, which made it I think more worth her really while. smart. It was a, it was but a clever what way. What about the social aspect? Well, right. You still have that, but it allowed them to come in, I guess. And there were clear shower curtains too. So you oh, okay. See, okay. You, know, you can still see everybody. So I wonder um, if we can get those in bulk. You just gave <laughs> me an idea. I, I don't know. I thought it was pretty clever. I mean, it was an inexpensive way, but I mean, you know, she's a small business and, and that worked for her. I just don't 
I don't know w- if this is going to really work, though. I mean, the big picture, when you really start doing it in mass, I just feel like we're just going to be rolling the dice. And, and that's really what it feels like. I mean, especially in the South, where we already have this mass spread and we all open our schools first, really, in the country. Um, everyone's going to be having their eye on us here in the South to see what happens in the month yeah. of August. There was a heated mass debate in a Slack channel uh, that I saw this week uh, at a workplace. I won't go into details about who or what they were saying, other than to mm-hmm. say it was about the idea of mask enforcement. I know I've asked you this once before, and you guys were kind of debating, well, can you enforce mask <laughs> if you well, aren't handing them out? Um, I mean, could you not consider the mask well, part of the uniform? We've had some extended discussions, and our decision has changed. Um, okay. This has not been board approved or released yet, um, but there was just discussion about we don't think we can force them to. We will ask them. We will encourage them. We can't provide it for them every day. I mean, you're talking thousands of dollars on disposable mask. Um, we don't. We don't have that kind of funding. And so we kept talking about it. I'll be honest with you. We had a few parents that took to social media and boy, were they upset and thinking already that we'd made the decision to not require masks. It's not that we're not requiring them. Our concern was how do we enforce something that we can't provide? Mm -hmm. Although we don't provide the uniforms, but there's still a great process that you go through when you enforce school uniforms. And we we have not gone through that type of process for the face mask. But we went back and we had some more discussion about it. And um, I think that we've actually decided to change the wording from encouraged to required. Um, and then we've got to go further and talk about students thinking about secondary, if they deliberately fail to wear their mask, children that are younger, if they, you know, multiple times forget to wear the mask, how do we handle that? And what do we do? Um, so we have further discussions to have, but we have decided that um, it's in the best interest for everyone to require students and staff alike. Let me ask you this. Are, are teachers... Are they designing like a safe space for themselves in the classroom where like, I don't know, I can see myself where I just need to to be by myself and know that no child is going to be near me. No person is going to be near me for a period of time. Is that a thing? Well, I haven't allowed anyone um, in the building, so they haven't really. I think they've just been thinking about it. But until our district makes, makes decisions regarding 100% virtual or hybrid, um, we're not really even discussing the classroom nature for them yet. Trying to keep their stress level low and actually allow them to to, to enjoy their time off. Right. I, I guess I can understand that completely. Um, and, and I noticed that apparently in San Francisco, there were are now 40 principals who are now in quarantine because one of them apparently was pre-symptomatic who was at this planning meeting um, where they were talking about, you know, how they can plan for this world with COVID-19. One of them apparently tested positive for coronavirus. So now all those principles are in quarantine and I imagine getting tested as Mm. well. So it just kind of goes to show you the challenges. Look, I I know um, from an inside source that uh, a bunch of superintendents met in a, a nearby state uh, recently, and what they weren't wrong none, with these people. None of them were wearing masks. It was a conference. They still had the conference, and they were all there without mask on. And um, I mean, hopefully, none of I haven't heard any case of any of them getting it. But it's just kind of you know the world we live in. It's very strange right now. So many unknowns. We will continue to track them here on the Class Dismissed podcast. Uh, Christina, are you ready for the bright idea? Absolutely. 
Our guest in today's Bright Ideas segment has had his work reported on Good Morning America, Hardball with Chris Matthews, and National Geographic. Rick Warmly was also one of the first nationally board-certified teachers in the United States. Today, Rick is here to talk about how teachers can get their students energized on day one of the school year. Rick, thank you so much for being on Class Dismissed. Oh, it's a pleasure. Um, now, there, there's so much I want to talk to you about this, but what I really caught my eye about this article that you wrote about ways to get you know students ready to go and not kind of you know bring them down on day one was something that I used to hate or despise as a as a student, and that was when the teacher walks in the door and they just want to go over the rules and hand out forms and not really get to know you, and that's really what you wrote this article for, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I hate that, too, because that's setting up school as a place of control, not hope, not possibility, not creativity, not that I belong here. It's all about how do I, um, I don't know, how do I cowtail? How do I just follow along and become one more peg, you know, in the system? And they want to know that you're going to take them, help them transcend their current condition, help them aspire to something more than they are, and give them hope for a year that's really going to finally be interesting and there's going to be meaning behind it. And when all they get is more rules and regulations, they realize, yeah, one more year where there's nothing here for me. And I think setting that foundation fundamentally changes the teacher-student relationship for the rest of the year. And I think you kind of kick off the article that you wrote um, talking about how important it is to to get to know your students and, and how far that goes. And it reminded me of something, I want to say I read it in like Seven Habits for Highly Effective Leaders or something like that, but it talked about like an emotional bank. Is that is that essentially what you're saying? You're trying to build like this this emotional bank with your students so they, they believe in you from day one and they trust you? Well, that's interesting. You know, the degree to which anybody takes risk in any organization, including a a basic classroom microcosm, is to a large extent based on the degree to which they feel like they have trust and relationship with the one in charge. So I think this idea of emotional bank accounts where you make deposits in it so that when things get rough, you can draw from it and you have a wellspring from which to draw, they still trust you. They're okay because they know you've got their back. You will not humiliate them. One of the things that I found is that, you know, students realize that you will not humiliate them and that you will not let them humiliate themselves. They'll move mountains for you. So it's kind of like a mutual ethos. I'm looking out for you. You're looking out for me. So I may not like the activity you want me to do, but I respect you so much. I'm going to give it a try because I see that you're trying to bring my world and make it relevant and that I have a seat at learning's table, that I have a role to play in the actual learning. When that's not perceived, then it's real easy to remain passive, to make excuses, to almost to develop a learned helplessness. So I've got to build the trust. I've got this. You're in good hands. And there's this, this whole body of research about model reliability. If I can trust that you're a reliable model in my life, I will put up with more of the challenges you, you request of me than I would if you're an unreliable model. So sometimes I ask myself and other teachers how do we prove that we're a reliable model? We remember supplies that we say we're going to remember to bring. If we say on Thursday we're going to do this, we do that thing on Thursday. If we say, hey, this is really going to be interesting, it turns out to be really interesting instead of just a put off or superficiality. So I think all those things come together to create a commitment that we're in this together. It's a collaboration to do this thing called school, not something we do to students, but something to do with them. And with that, the students feel like, okay, there's connection for me. I belong as a part of this this whole process. 
you offer a list of ideas of ways that maybe teachers should start off that first day of class. And, and it's so succinct and, and really just, you know, simple ideas that I think I had to share this with, with our listeners. So if you'll, you'll humor me, I want to kind of go over some of those and spread the word. Sure. But, yeah. But, but the, uh, the first one in there is the best way for you to learn, you said cards, like basically, I guess, put cards out. Help me understand that. Yeah, it's just like index cards or whatever, card stock or whatever you have. If you want to do it digitally, that's fine. But basically, kids are candid, and they know themselves pretty well already by the time they get to you know, third, fourth grade. It might be doing a little differently than if you had younger kids. But we're talking about middle school, high school as well. And they'll say things like, well, I'll, I'll just say, hey, what's the best way for you to learn math? What's the best way for you to learn science? And they will say things like, look, if, you, if it's really important, write it on the board. Otherwise, I won't think it's important. Um, don't ask me to do it online, as I mentioned in the article, because this doesn't always work with my home life, because my brother or my sister always hog the computer and we only have one. They're, they're, I take those that stack of cards, and when I'm in the classroom, I'm on leave right now, but when I'm in the classroom, I have 185 students. So what does that mean? It means I got a stack that I rubber band, mm-hmm. and I look through that as I'm trying to decide what to do next, and kids will say some really cool things, give me lots of examples, um, you know, can I get a copy of these various things? Speak slowly. <laughs> it right. bothers me. Um, can I sit near the window? Um, there needs to be fresh air or I get really sleepy. <laughs> All that stuff is on there. And it's really very helpful. So when I'm worrying about a kid who's not thriving, I look through those cards to see if they said some, shared something with me that I need to hear. You also, this is a good one. You say, have the, the students write letters to the teacher, but as if they were their own parents. Oh, yeah, that's so liberating. When you write under pseudonym, you kind of are more free with the things that normally you would hold back. And the kids love it because it's the only time during the year they can write, you know, Dear Rick and act really grown up. But there's like one adult talking to another. And they say things about their lives. It, it, you know, there's one issue that sometimes they get so free, they, they share private things that parents would prefer they not share. So I do have to caution them on that. <laughs> right. But... When I get what they say about themselves, and then I get what they think their parents would say about themselves, I'm getting a really fleshed out version of the child. And when somebody's fully dimensionalized, you really care a heck of a lot more. It really activates all that that teacher side of you when you say, I really want to know this person. This complexity makes it much more interesting for me in the classroom. And again, like how much better is this than than just, you know, handing out forms and saying these are the rules of the class? Like if I was a student in a class that did that, I would be completely inspired and ready to come back the next day. Well, you would think you'd feel like the teacher cared enough to get to know me as a person instead of one more paper to grade. And a lot of students live in fear of that. I mean, I think every one of us wants to be connected. And another thing that you do, uh, Rick, you suggest that the teachers do um, interest surveys, kind of find out what the students are interested in, correct? Yes. But here's the problem, though. Some of them can be pretty stale. So, uh, yeah, there's a certain section where I want to get the basics, like do you have hobbies, favorite foods, sports, things like that. Maybe what do you what do you think of yourself doing for a career, that sort of thing. But I think there's benefit to doing some really, I don't know, just innovative ones, you know, a, a variety of things. Like I think one I mentioned in the article was about if you want to swap places with an animated Marvel, DC Comics, anime, manga, gaming character, who would it be and why? Mm-hmm. Uh, this it's, it's a little bit weird. It's a little bit different. But I think when people are kind of stretched in a place that's a little bit different, who they really are comes out. It's a bit more authentic. 
So if you can go back and give yourself advice from years ago, uh, what's something that surprises you? Describe something you, you daydream about or whatever it might be. What's something you wonder about how it works? There's an innocence there, a, a, a genuineness that can come out. And I think you have to find a variety of ways. The one caution I would give, though, is that many times we're overly reliant on linguistic representation, so orally or in writing. And some kids just are better at drawing or expressing things in a non-linguistic way. So if there is any possibility as you do a survey that they could actually have alternative ways of expressing it, I think you would serve yourself well and you might actually see a different side of the student otherwise unseen. In this last one I want to hit on, and you have several, and I'll link to the article in our show notes, but um, this one, because okay. uh, I'd never heard of it, six-word memoirs. Uh, I love six-word memoirs. And the coolest thing about it is that kids just, they they say profound things, and the rest of the class goes, what the, <laughs> who are you? What have you done with our friend? I mean, they just astonish themselves. They surprise themselves. And it's not five words, it's not seven, it has to be six. So every single word counts. Every single word advances your cause. And this is a whole meme, man. There is a whole set of websites and books. Like there are whole books just in romantic six-word memoirs. There are whole websites dedicated to growing up six-word memoirs. But the basic idea is that way back long ago, the urban legend is that Ernest Hemingway was told to write the most poignant story he could in the shortest amount of words and he wrote, for sale, baby shoes, never worn. And that's it's a gut punch for a lot of people. You can do funny ones. And I think I put some of those in there, like my entourage asleep in his crib. Uh, books, music, that's all I need. You know, things like that. But what's really cool is they do it about themselves. You get to know the kids. So in the, in the six-word memoirs, we can use that as students actually review and look at content. And when you do a six-word memoir and then you explain behind the scenes, you know, what were you thinking? You use that word versus that word and that profound nature of it. It really reveals a lot more about what the student's thinking. So I see misconceptions that otherwise go unseen. The students get very excited about it. They feel empowered. I often get students who, after the class is over, will send me six-word memoirs of what happened in, in the sports practice that day or what they think about this movie. Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Two. What's your six-word memoir? And they really have a good time with it. They want to. They ask to do it throughout the year. So it's always a really good practice. But truly, there's a whole website and a book dedicated to it. I direct everybody to take a look at that to get inspired. Well, these ideas are absolutely incredible. And and like I said earlier, I mean, as a student, I would love to see my teachers. You know, you bringing some of this to the classroom on day one. I think it just really kind of sets the tone and changes it. Um, I do want to talk about some other things, and that just has to do with you as. A, as a whole, I know you, you travel the country. What's your message right now? What's your main talking point as you kind of go from school to school? Man, that's a really good question. I think there's a, a lot of room for hope. A lot of people are very, very disgruntled, very frustrated, losing morale in teaching. We have such a drought of teachers, so many places where they're having to double up. Teachers taking more and more students because nobody wants to go into the profession. We have schools of teacher ed that aren't getting enough candidates to fill all the slots available. And it's not paying very well, obviously. And it's a little bit demoralizing in that society tends to put all of its ills and concerns on the shoulders of teachers. And so students are coming for more and more dysfunctional communities or lives. There's a divisive politics, there's a toxic nature. We're doing the drills for 
you know, uh, uh, shooter drills, practice drills. Mm-hmm. We've got worry about ice raids in some places and students are just crying and teachers are like, hey, how do I navigate that and say, oh, it's really important to learn where to put a comma and a divided quote. Some things are just paling in importance. And then we have the bigger, the big issues of what do we choose to teach? You know, particularly history and social studies. Well, if we teach that narrative, that's seen through that lens, that filter, and that's not responsive or respectful of the filter of this other uh, group of people over here. So the idea of how do we become more sensitive and a lot of teachers, you know, they've been identified with certain ways of teaching and certain things they teach for years. And now you're asking them to drop that. There's a grieving process. That's a really big struggle. I also find that there's a, a, a real struggle to get teachers to be developmentally appropriate. Like if I were to say, what's developmentally appropriate for a third grader or a middle schooler or a high schooler, they kind of stare blankly at me. So there's been an explosion of cognitive science research of late. What we really know about brains learn and, and think and remember, long-term memory, uh, uh, retrieval practice has been exciting, a new field. And I think before I can teach you about standards-based grading, differentiated instruction, reading in the content areas, technology integrations, whatever they are, social-emotional learning, I do need to have you develop a sense of expertise about the brain. And a lot of teachers just aren't there yet, but some schools of teacher ed are not providing that as well. So it's kind of a a mixed bag. We need pre-service and in-service on that. And I think if you were equipped, fortified, with a real serious knowledge of versatility with what you know about the human mind and skill development and memory development and, and maturation, you'd be more likely to dive into some of the more effective innovative practices of, of a modern pedagogical approach. But there are a lot of people, they know their subject or they know what they've been doing for 20 years and they're not willing to go through the, mm-hmm. it's really heavy lifting uh, of the change process. So I do talk a lot about that. And I think the idea of racism and microaggressions and implicit bias has become paramount. And some people have just grown a little bit complacent. Along that same line, I think the intellect and creativity atrophy after been teaching the same thing year after year after year, and we don't pay enough attention to the intellectual wellness of teachers, the intellectual life of teachers, and how to cultivate that just to kind of feed their personal soul, but to create a sense of empathy for the child who's learning something brand new, let alone the excitement on our own of learning something about which we've always, always been passionate and I think if the server's down, a child is driving us nuts, we can't get the resources you know, for another five weeks, and now our lesson plan is out the window. When those problems arise, if you don't pay attention to cultivate and nourish your intellect and creativity, you don't see yourself as a problem solver. You see one way to teach it. If that one way is taken away, there's nothing you can do. Your hands are tied. And you almost develop what students do, a learned helplessness. And I think that we need to own this stuff. We don't wait for a school to do our own professional development. We're in charge of our own professional development. And a big part of that is to cultivating, how do I problem solve when things are quite challenging? So I think a, a mixture of all those would be what I'm really emphasizing if, if you want that. Sorry, it's such a no, no. convoluted answer. No, I, I love your energy. It's it's contagious. Um, and, and I just got to ask, like, so if somebody wants to, to catch up with you, to, to have a chat with you or, or try to even book you, like, how do they go about doing that? Should they talk to you on Twitter or reach out to you through a website? 
Hey, my website is very easy to remember. It's just my name and .com, so rickwormley.com. And there are at least four or five ways on there where you can send me a quick email and say, let's talk further about this. But I am on Twitter, and I love talking on Twitter. I'm part of Twitter communities and chats and so on. So if you want to go to at rickwormley2, there is at rickwormley, but it was hacked about five years ago. Oh, so no. I switched over to two. Yeah, either one of those, the website rickwormley.com or the Rick Wormley 2, great ways to get a hold of me. All right, excellent. Rick, again, we appreciate you coming on the show. Are you ready for our pop quiz? Oh, man, hit me with it. All right. Uh, you've, you've been around the block with education, so I'm looking forward to your answers here, all right? So first question, if students could only go to school for one subject, which subject should it be? Reading. Reading opens more doors and slams more doors. I guarantee it's the most important t- subject taught in high school, middle school, elementary, and great scientists and great historians and great mathematicians can read their disciplines, not just present some case studies in numeric computation or whatever it is. It's the reading of it that opens those doors and just allows you to achieve all your dreams, followed very closely by science. I think it's to our peril. We have science illiterate people, so we need to make science literacy paramount as well. What are we not teaching in school that we should be teaching? I like the the social emotional learning stuff, but not to the exclusion of other things. I think some people, and this is not going to make me very popular with some educators, I think some people are saying, hey, you can always look it up. Content knowledge isn't nearly as important. Explicit instruction isn't nearly important. And I think it is. I think when you read something, you have to have a stored knowledge base to connect to what you are reading. Otherwise, you will not remember it. It will not be perspective. You will not recognize patterns. You'll not develop the meaning making that needs to be there. Memorizing facts, large swaths of literature, uh, 50 pronouns, transition words, formulas. The act of memorizing is not overtly taught to do it. It's not just about the skills. It is literally about the content itself. What does every child deserve? A loving, compassionate, ceaseless advocate. What's the biggest challenge for today's educators? There's so many. Yeah, I know. I know you did kind of touch on this when I asked you what, what you're speaking about. So I, I guess yeah, you I kind think, of answered it. I think politics that gets in the way of effective instruction is the biggest challenge. And then lack of resources and support um, would be a, a very close tie or, or second place. What's the best gift to give an educator? Time. Uh, just the time to do it. I, I get, Give me two hours of planning time or time to work with kids rather than, you know, I may or may not get a planning period because there's so many subs we have to cover each other's classes. I think the time to do that, more time, no more work days where I could get together and we can collaborate. Be awesome. I'm not all, I'm not totally against uh, coupons for a favorite coffee local establishment. <laughs> it would be very helpful. Right. I, I think, um, the great is just to support you in your own journey, your own development as well, whatever way you can make that happen. Which teacher changed your life? There were several. I'll say Mr. Caputo in sixth grade, Mrs. Culpepper in fourth grade. Uh, oh, I, I, Mrs. Newsom in seventh grade. I would walk in and say, can we please do something creative today? And she would say, I got it just for you. This is the Rick Warmly part of the lesson. And that really helped me feel like maybe I could be a part of this. I think all those teachers were articulate, enthusiastic ambassadors for the teaching profession. And they revealed behind the scenes thinking, you know, what it was like to be a teacher. And I just, it helped me create a vision of myself and maybe eventually seeing myself doing that. And I've tried to do that with, as I teach science, 
I bring scientists in the classroom as they teach math. I bring mathematicians in the classroom, engineers in the classroom, so they can see a person of a person personifying, I guess, of somebody really doing it instead of just reading about it abstractly in some book. And last question: pen or pencil? I I think, and I I I stream my consciousness, so to speak, really fast. So I need the smoothness of a pen, but I scratch out right and left. But the pen helps me keep up with the words in my head. A pencil is just slower moving, but I like the idea that I can erase it. I'm gonna have to say a pen just for the fluency of it, but pencil maybe for the functionality. I have to give you credit. We've done over a hundred interviews, and I think that was the most like thought out pen or pencil answer we've ever had on the show. <laughs> you really. <laughs> Well, good. I'm always glad to be, you know, a trendsetter. Right. right. Again, uh, you can catch up with Rick Warmly over at wickwarmly.com or, or find him over on Twitter. Rick, we really appreciate you taking the time to chat with us. Thank you for your curiosity and for the program. I, I love this podcast. That's going to do it for this episode of Class Dismissed. If you want to send us an idea or comment, remember you can always email us at info at classdismissedpodcast.com or tweet us at classdismiss. We're here to support educators, but we need your support as well. So please subscribe to the show. And we'd also appreciate it if you could leave us a five-star review on iTunes. On behalf of all the good people working at School Status and Christina, representing all those educators out there, thank you for listening. I'm Nick Ortigo, and I'll talk with you next week. Class dismissed. <laughs>